The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. In 2009, the wellness community joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the Cancer Support Community, the largest provider of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Our show today is sponsored in part by Lily Oncology and AstraZeneca. We are constantly surrounded by words. Words bombard us through our screens and surround us from billboards and signs and posters and social media. And we usually forget about their presence because words are so ubiquitous to our daily lives. However, words do have the ability to influence us. They can inspire us. They can pave a way to knowledge and to discovery. Words even have the power to heal. By writing and reading about cancer, those impacted by cancer can gain perspective through self-reflection and find a sense of community through shared experiences. Joining me today on our show to talk about the healing power of words is Susan Guber, author of the book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. Susan is an author and a distinguished emeritus professor of English at Indiana University. After being diagnosed with ovarian cancer, Susan wrote Memoir of a Debulked Woman, Enduring Ovarian Cancer, which provides intimate details about her cancer journey. Currently, Susan writes about her cancer experiences in her New York Times blog, Living with Cancer. Her blog unabashedly discusses every aspect of a life with cancer, including allowing yourself to mourn a diagnosis, and to desire alternative methods of treatment. Her recent book, Reading and Writing Cancer, explains the therapeutic ways writing and reading can help those impacted by cancer by allowing them to regain a sense of self and by showing them that they aren't alone in their cancer experience. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you so much. So let's uh, let's jump in, Susan. Um, First of all, tell us a little bit about your background in the literary world. Well, as you mentioned, I've been teaching at Indiana University. Uh, I started here in 1973, and I really only finished when the diagnosis put an end to my professional career. Uh, Probably my two better-known books are The Mad Woman in the Attic and the Norton Anthology of Literature by Women, which I I co-authored both of those books with my collaborator, Sandra Gilbert. Hmm. And I know, Susan, you were diagnosed with um, ovarian cancer, and instead of keeping your experiences private, you've shared them in very detailed ways, including through your memoir and through 
the blog that you currently write uh, for the New York Times. So why did you decide to share your experiences so openly? In fact, let, let's go back and why don't you give us some history about when you were um, diagnosed and what that time was like for you? I was diagnosed in 2008, and I found it a very shocking experience. I started writing uh, really in order to remember what was happening to me because I was so estranged by the technologies, by the shock of mortality, by a diagnosis that came with a prognosis of three to five years. I was afraid that if I didn't keep a journal or a diary, I would repress or forget in a miasma of pain and, and anxiety. So writing for me was really a way of remembering, analyzing, conceptualizing, and taking in information that felt profoundly traumatic. Out of that diary came um, memoirs of the bulk woman. But the blog was a much later phenomenon. Um, I, was, I was writing the diary, as I said, in 2008 and nine. The blogs really began in 2016. 2012. Mm -hmm. And I think my first motivation there was the stress that so many women did not know the signs of ovarian cancer, uh, that there was no early detection tool, that it was frequently misdiagnosed, and that there were very poor survival rates. So um, I I, I, I feel like the blog was a more public um, kind of form of self-expression coming out of a kind of, quite honestly, anger uh, at, at the, the poor treatments that were available for women with this type of disease. Can you uh, tell us uh, what led to your diagnosis? Were you having symptoms? And can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your treatment? Yes, I was having um, a, a lot of symptoms, and I went repeatedly to my general practitioner who repeatedly misdiagnosed it as irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, it was only after months of changing my diet and my exercise habits and trying prune juice and wheat germ and all kinds of other things mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I was finally sent for a CT scan, and then it was it was stage three. I was immediately uh, given what all of, most ovarian cancer patients are given, a draconian form of surgery called debulking, where um, all of the affected organs in the abdomen are removed, um, and um, parts of the bowel and the appendix, the spleen, um, the ovaries, the fallopian tube, the uterus, you name it. After that, I went through various rounds of chemotherapy. And and in terms of your, uh, you know, you're certainly, uh, th through that very difficult um, experience, you found the motivation, the strength to write, you know, very personal stories, but that you really intended to be shared publicly. Is that is that in your nature? Is that the kind of person that you are? Or was it this experience that you really felt needed to be shared? I don't think I found the strength to share. I think I needed to share. And uh, it was a sort of compulsion. I mean, it's the way I understand the world is by finding the words that help me conceptualize what I'm going through. So sharing gave me strength um, rather than the other way around. And in terms of the, you talk, talk a little bit more, Susan, for me about the difference between the book and, and the blog, the difference in what that kind of meant for you personally, the difference in how folks have kind of 
reacted to you or shared feedback with you? Can you talk about that sure. process I, I for mean, each for, and the, for, yeah, the for, differences? Yeah. For me, the memoir um, was a very personal form of testifying and bearing witness. Um, and I assumed it would be read primarily by women who were facing comparable circumstances. In my new book, I talk about memoirs and how helpful they are for people. If a man has prostate cancer and he reads a memoir about prostate cancer, he's going to find out how another person handles the problems of incontinence or impotence, right? So I think for the memoir, it was a very personal form of writing. I think the blog, it's personal, but it's also I'm very aware of a larger public. Uh, uh, the New York Times reaches an enormous number of readers. So I'm more aware of audience issues with the blog. And can you um, talk to us about how folks have reacted to your blog? Are there people going through cancer who write to you? Are there folks who, who respond? Are you anything that sort of has surprised you or any stories that sort of stand out? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, fir- the very first blog I wrote was called I Am Not a Cancer Survivor, which is pretty ironic since I was given an expiration date of 2013. But an experimental drug in a clinical trial has magically extended my life. But the response from that moment on of the readers has been just terrific. People, people writing themselves about how they felt that when a relative died from cancer uh, because of all of the survivor hype, that person was considered someone who had lost the battle. Um, and people have been responding ever since. I learned an enormous amount from my readers. I, I wrote a blog on the language of, of cancer, the inadequate medical language where patients are said to have failed drugs when drugs have really failed patients, or on doctors talking about minimal side effects that turn out to be maximum side effects. Um, but I was also writing about patient language and how patients have created new words like scansiety, about the anxiety that scans create, or about chemoflage, about uh, the ways in which uh, pamphlets about chemo, uh, camouflage, the problems that it creates and the side, side effects it creates. And my readers wrote in marvelous self-identification terms. One reader described herself as a Ph.D., patient hasn't died. And another, another patient described herself as a chemo sapien, a person with chronic cancer who was going to always be on chemotherapy. So my, I find the readers' responses very moving, very touching, and very, very enlightening. That's really, really fascinating. And, ju- and to, it, it just seems like the blog is such an amazing vehicle to kind of have those, you know, those kinds of spontaneous interactions. You know, as you said, it's a sort of the book was the, the memoir. It's sort of, it's done, it's in writing, it's out there for folks. But the, it seems like the blog really becomes an incredible opportunity for you to maybe continue to share different aspects of your experience, but also to have these sort of in-the-moment interactions with people, or it really gives others a vehicle to express their own thoughts and feelings about their experience. Is that, is it sort of a living and breathing thing? I really feel it's a, a great privilege and a gift in my life. I, 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 like, I like writing it, and I love reading the comments. 
Yeah, I bet. That's amazing. That's amazing. And can you just, uh, we're, uh, we've got a couple minutes until our first break here, Susan, but uh, can you give our listeners a little bit of an update um, about you and about your health and are you feeling well and what is your sort of continued surveillance plan? Well, I went into this uh, very pessimistic when I found out about the diagnosis because I had just lost a friend from ovarian cancer. And my doctor told me three to five years, and she didn't think that a new drug in the pipeline would be ready for me when I would need it. Well, it was ready in the pipeline. It was, a, it was available in a clinical trial in 1212, one year before I was supposed to die. And she enrolled me in this phase one clinical trial, and this drug has kept me alive since. Wow, that's that's it's an, uh, it's, that's it's amazing. A, it's a remarkable story. It's a rem- and this drug is a is a targeted drug, so it does not have the side effects of chemotherapy. And uh, you know, I also think it's interesting. You know, your story of of being diagnosed with ovarian cancer is the story of so many women, which is misdiagnosis, 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 right. and that so many of the symptoms, you know, sort of mock or mirror symptoms of other, you know, diseases or conditions, including regular sort of female issues that that uh, you exactly. know that women that women face. And I know that's a reason because we don't have a blood test yet or a screening test that that's a, a reason why women often um, are, are diagnosed a little bit later with, uh, uh, you know, with ovarian cancer, which, you know, I, I hopefully we're making some progress on that and, and uh, progress on sort of, you know, better early uh, detection of ovarian cancer. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking with Susan Goober. She's the author of a new book called Reading and Writing Cancer. And she has a New York Times blog called Living with, uh, Living with Cancer. She's got uh, a pretty um, amazing, uh, amazing background uh, that she is sharing with us, including the, the fact that she is an award-winning author, a distinguished emeritus professor of English uh, at Indiana University. And she is a, uh, an author and a cancer survivor. In fact, her memoir was called Memoir of a Debulked Woman uh, in Enduring Ovarian Cancer. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're going to take a quick break, but we have a lot to discuss with Susan. So please don't go away. We'll be right back. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. 
Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo from the Cancer Support Community. The show today is sponsored in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Insight Corporation. Today we're talking about how words have the ability to heal. We've been discussing this with Susan Goober, a well-published author, uh, uh, including the publication of her recent book, Reading and Writing Cancer, a book on how to examine one's cancer journey by writing and reading about cancer. Um, Susan, you're an, an English professor and you've taught uh, for many years, and that's certainly apparent um, uh, in your book. You're certainly your history as a writer. Um, you discuss writing and reading with certainly affection, with knowledge, um, and you do a great job really creating a bridge from the non-literary world to a place where expressing yourself with words is, is comfortable and, in fact, um, uh, important. So we've talked a little bit about your, your memoir. We've talked about um, uh, your blog, which we can certainly elaborate on a little bit more, and I want to make sure our listeners know where and how to find uh, find your blog. But t- talk about your new book, Reading and Writing Cancer. What was the inspiration for writing your recent book? What do you hope that the readers will find in those pages? 
Well, I think the, the, the project as I submitted it to the publisher was actually just called Writing Cancer. Um, I, I wanted to uh, make it clear to people that there could be, that writing could be therapeutic. It had been therapeutic for me, so I assumed it could be therapeutic for others. And I had been teaching composition for 40 years to freshmen, to graduate students, and adult education courses. The reading part came later. Um, and the writing part came out of the sense that we learn to think in new ways by writing. Uh, w. H. Orden said, language is the mother of thought. Not the handmaiden, but the mother of thought. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it seems to me that when we find words, we find a way to conceptualize our language. When we find words about cancer, we find ways to conceptualize our experiences of cancer, which are so diverse. And you, you say that writing about cancer is, is, is quote, a way to, to write some of cancer's grievous wrongs, to write some of cancer's grievous wrongs. Uh, tell us about that. How does that happen? I think in the process of uh, writing, and of course there are all these puns here, uh, we write R-I-G-H-T wrongs because in part writing can become a write, R-I-T-E. It can become a ritual. It can become a form of concentration where you're quiet and you're still and you're alone and you're just with a pen and a paper or a computer file and you're understanding your own conditions. So it seems to me that it's, it, there's a zone, a concentration zone that you can get into when you're considering your own experiences through language that is not unlike what happens when you go into yoga or meditation, a sense of peacefulness, and also a sense of accomplishment. So what do you, what do you tell people, Susan, if they say, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to get started. I don't, I, I, I'm not a writer. Um, I, you know, I, don't, I, I certainly have some thoughts about maybe what I'm going through or what my family's going through or how this has affected us, but, but I'm not really a writer. No one's really going to want to read what I'm writing. How do you tell somebody to get started? Well, in the book, what I do is I provide um, prompts and springboards. One type of prompt is uh, an assignment. And if you tell yourself you're going to write for 25 or 30 minutes a day, I mean, think about it. Writing is, is cheap. It's very inexpensive. Um, you don't need a special place. You don't need special technologies. Um, you're in a world of cancer where you lack control, and in the world of writing, you have total control over tone, over language. You can mock, you can laugh, you can ridicule, you can curse, you can pray. So to help people get started, let's say, doing 20 or 25 minutes a day of writing, um, I give people either an assignment or a springboard. So would you like some examples? I would love that. I would love that. Yes, Absolutely. Okay, so some of the examples would be remember the moment of diagnosis or telling a sibling about it or weigh the consequences of two alternative proposed medical protocols or, let's see, um, celebrate a doctor or a nurse. Consider your dietary or exercise goals. And then I also give these springboards, which are sort of the beginning of a sentence that you could finish and keep on writing. Uh, here's an example. My friend responded to my cancer by, or the side effects I would never have expected surfaced as, 
this is something that happens to me, the issue of insomnia. Waking at 3 a.m., I. What do you do when you wake up at 3 a.m., which is very common with people who are depressed or anxious? Mm-hmm. Um, or the, the fact that really a diagnosis is a threshold and everything changes. So here's one springboard to get to that issue. I used to, but now I. And then finally, we change. Our physical looks change um, with cancer treatment. I lost all my hair. I lost a lot of weight. So when I look in the mirror, I see. What is it mm-hmm. that you're seeing when you look in the mirror, and how do you look to yourself? Those mm-hmm. are the kinds of um, sort of practices that I think can, be, can start writing for those who have not done it regularly in their lives. Many people can also go to hospitals that have writing programs because the medical research does indeed prove that that writing actually alters people for the better, not only psychologically but physiologically. So so talk about that research, Susan. I know in your book you describe how in one study from the Journal of uh, Clinical Oncology in 2014 that people with, with renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer, who participated in writing were less depressed or less fatigued. Um, tell, you know, tell us a little bit more about that, uh, about the data and what we know about that. And, and you know, what do you, wh- why do you think that writing leads to these kinds of benefits? Well, I do think that the data is overwhelming. And I think that's why there are programs at major um, cancer support, you know, cancer um, hospitals uh, that include writing. Some of these programs, um, I think, help patients because People come together and discuss their writing, and then you have an audience, so you're feeling much less alone. Um, I also feel that some people are much more private and don't want to go into those sorts of programs, and I think they can benefit simply uh, because it seems to me that they will, they'll be dealing with their fears. They'll be making decisions about their finances. They'll making, be making lists about their side effects. They'll be prioritizing their values. And they can even really talk out in the writing what they want to tell their oncologist during the next session that they've been worried about discussing with her or him. So I do think that um, there are all different ways in which writing can be extremely beneficial. Do you think that... um it can also be a way for somebody to vent privately about uh, you know, maybe something or someone in their life that they wouldn't necessarily want to discuss with another person. I know, for example, one of the things that people always tell me when they're diagnosed with cancer is that they're as surprised about who does show up as they are about who doesn't show up. And sometimes they don't want to go any further and name names and things like that. But do you think it can become a way to vent kind of hurt feelings or frustration or fears? Well, I know exactly what you're talking about because, unfortunately, I have a very, very, I would say one of my best friends disappeared in the middle of my, one of my crises. Yeah. And um, she just vanished. And this is not uncommon. Um, I think that cancer patients very, very frequently feel a kind of anger. Actually, in, an, in, the, in the memoirs I discuss in Reading and Writing Cancer, anger and rage is a paramount theme, not just against people who have disappeared, but against misdiagnosis about callous care in hospitals, 
about um, invasive procedures and miserable side effects. I think venting in a diary is a marvelous thing because you don't have to send the letter that you write to your friend in anger. It just stays with you, and you don't have to feel guilty, and you don't have to worry about her hurt feelings. You can just express everything that you feel. Yeah, and and just you know, as we go to our our uh, our break here, Susan, you discussed that uh, with writing about cancer, you you yourself would actually sometimes self censor. And in, in what ways did you censor yourself? And well, how I did think you get over that hurdle of discussing those difficult topics sometimes. I I think the difference between uh, a, a private diary and a blog that's public. There are private blogs too, um, but yeah. but a public blog. Uh, means that you're very aware of your audience and of alienating your audience. And for me, it was uh, an issue of modesty, and I have to admit a bit of shame. I had gone through a very uh, miserable treatment called an ileostomy, and I felt the need to be honest about it in the memoir, but I found it very difficult to discuss in the blog because it involved excremental and scatological issues that were very difficult for me to talk about in public. So I do think the issue of self-censorship is something that comes up more in public forms of writing than in private. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think about potentially a very broad range of an audience and how do you write to, (laughs) how do you write to sort of the median of that audience or to your sort of quote unquote average reader? Well, and how do you tell the truth about your body when your body is misfunctioning or malfunctioning? How do you talk about private parts of the body that you've been taught all the time not to talk about or only to talk about in very careful ways? Um, And also, if you've had a miserable procedure that's made you unhappy, you don't want to scare off other patients who may also have to have that procedure. Yeah. Yeah. So there yeah. are a lot of issues there about dealing with, with vulnerable people who are readers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And certainly, you know, I think it's must be a challenge to think about those those various uh, filters and think about, you know, a broad audience of folks who may be reading. And like you said, where's the line, right? Where's the line in terms of, of, of scaring people, you know, rather than perhaps inspiring them or encouraging them exactly. to use this? as exactly. a meaningful tool for themselves. I so don't want to be his voice of doom, you know. Right, right, exactly, exactly. But you don't want to sugarcoat uh, sugarcoat either. Um, so it is quite a responsibility I think you have um, in that role. And that's the uh, uh, Susan's New York Times blog called Living with Cancer. Uh, she's the author of Reading and Writing Cancer. Uh, we uh, are going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We have a lot more to discuss with Susan. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part today by Taiho Oncology and Celgene Corporation. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo from the Cancer Support Community. And today we are joined by Susan Goober, author of the book, Reading and Writing Cancer. Um, Susan, this book isn't just a guide on how to write about cancer. It's also a literary conversation about other authors who've written about cancer. Um, you know, just just walk our listeners through what they can expect to find um, in the book. Well, um, the second chapter, in terms of uh, um, the book being about reading, not Mm -hmm. writing, the first chapter is about writing, how to write about cancer. The second chapter is about memoirs. Um, And I was particularly interested in um, memoirs of uh, people who were dealing with very specific forms of cancer in very personal ways and the ways in which both anger and also an effort to understand and imagine what cancer is. Those two are the, those are the themes in that chapter. Um, but I'm also interested in imaginative literature because I'm a literary critic uh, by trade, and I was interested in what the cancer canon was. What 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 are the what are the poems? What are the stories? The novels um, and the fiction. Uh, and plays that have been written about cancer, and it turned out there were quite a few. Um, so that the third chapter is about that, uh, about the ways in which imaginative writers have uh, conceived of uh, cancer and patients dealing with it, as well as photographers and um, painters. So I I don't reproduce photography or painting in the book, but it's easily found on the web, and um, there's some remarkable work out there. Can you um, can you elaborate on two pieces of what you just talked about? Number one, looking at some different memoirs and how others have talked about cancer. Can you pull out a couple of of, of examples of that? And number two, I'd love to go a little bit more in depth on um, 
what you describe as imaginative writers, the cancer can and how cancer has been discussed in literature uh, over the years. I'd love for you to just dive in a little bit more on both of those, Susan. Fascinating. Well, the, the memoir that I discuss in detail is about a prostate cancer uh, survivor, Michael Corda, and I was particularly interested in, in that because I went to a prostate cancer survivor group. I was invited to speak and to talk with the men in this group. And it was very striking to me when I went that the men had a great deal of difficulty finding language to discuss incontinence and impotence. Some of them had brought their wives with them, and the wives helped out if they could, but it was clearly a very difficult problem for this group of survivors. And um, Michael Corda manages to do this, and he does it in a way that is honest and um, clarifying, doesn't sugarcoat, uh, but, but helps you understand what kinds of things you can do to help yourself in those circumstances. Um, I was very impressed with, with his uh, sensitivity and his willingness and his, and his attempt to educate men to talk about these issues. I think that women find it more, it's, it's, easy, it's clearly easier. If you look at the number of breast cancer memoirs, there are enormous numbers. And the prostate cancer memoirs I found were maybe, maybe two or three. Hmm. So um, and, and, I, I yeah. found that interesting. Yeah, that is certainly interesting. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, we see the same, uh, you know, ratios reflected in our support groups at our centers around the country. We certainly have a much larger percentage of women who are participating in our in our uh, support groups than uh, than men. But interestingly, we find more men who are tapping into some of our services online. And that may be because there's an anonymity to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, they, they appreciate uh, uh, that sort of online opportunity to be a little bit more anonymous in, in connecting with others, showing they still really desire the connection, but they're looking for ways to do it that feel a little bit more um, more comfortable for them. Um, so, Susan, take us a little more into the next chapter where you talk about, you know, the quote-unquote imaginative writers, uh, cancer in fiction. Um, tell us about some of the other, uh, some of the analysis there and what you've, you know, observed in that analysis. Well, I think that the standard is still uh, Tolstoy's death of Ivan Illich. I think it's an incredible short story um, that teaches us something about the experience of uh, loneliness, especially when disease is denied. I mean, his doctors and his family are trying to say that he's not really that sick and that if he just takes his medicine, he'll be fine. And this encases him in a kind of loneliness that is extremely difficult for him to break out of. The other great story about cancer, it seems to me, is by Tilly Olson, Tell Me a Riddle. Uh, Although I would want to say to readers and to listeners that um, Laurie Moore and Alice Monroe have produced marvelous short stories that I discuss in the book about surviving with cancer and about dealing with hospital language, and about even the issue of a, of a child sick with disease. Um, I think what's interesting about this, um, very often what's interesting about imaginative literature it's, is its interest in time. It suggests that once we get a cancer diagnosis, our sense of temporality changes, that the diagnosis and then the prognosis makes us feel as if we can't tell about our own future. It's a radically shifting future. It could be radically foreshortened 
It might be extended. We don't know. We're so now, this is clearly the case for every human being who's alive, but somehow the disease of cancer, especially if it's a, if it's a difficult-to-treat cancer, yes. pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, certain lung cancers, ovarian cancer, um, it seems to me that it really shapes, and, and imaginative writers are very aware of this, a, a kind of shifting sense of time a sense that we're on a floating bridge and as if it, we could just drop down at any moment through a slat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, know, I, 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 you know, I know in the book you wrote uh, that C.S. Lewis said, we read to know we are not alone. And, uh, you know, I find that very interesting because uh, certainly our, our motto at the cancer support community is so that no one faces cancer alone. And so many of the programs that we have are really about you know, allowing folks the chance to connect um, with one another. We know that the the literature in in our world in psychosocial oncology says that the three most common stressors that people experience when diagnosed with cancer is a loss of hope, a loss of control, and a sense of isolation. And it seems to me that writing in many ways becomes a formula to address all three of those things, a loss of control, a loss of hope, and a sense of isolation. It seems to me that writing could be a real tool or a vehicle to help folks address all three of those. Is that? Would you agree? I would agree. I would also add reading because, you know, um, mm. reading is also a way of connecting with other people imaginatively. I mean, we think of books as an escape from experience, but very often we're escaping into somebody else's experience. We feel a certain kind of empathy with that other person, and then we reconnect with our own experiences in a different perspective. So um, Proust called uh, the authors that he read his best friends, his truest form of friendship was with the authors of the books that he was reading. So I think that reading is also a way of connecting and of feeling less alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, writing is yes. writing is a more active. Is, is I think what what you're getting at is that writing is a more active way of connecting, and you can connect literally with other people. I mean, many cancer patients like me. I I started writing letters to my daughter after my diagnosis, just reminding mm-hmm. myself. I, I never, I've never given them to them. I mean, I may give it to them. It's now become a long letter. I may give these letters to my daughters um, when I'm dying. But uh, for me, it was a way of remembering our shared holidays, our misadventures on vacations, our cooking mishaps, our sports events, their theatrical, you know what I'm saying? So it's a way of connecting with your children. Or some people feel that they, they want to they write their own Obituary. Um, yes, I write about that in the book about how you 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 can write a self obituary. Um, you can write you can write your own memorial if you want, and and those words will be spoken, if not heard mm-hmm. by you, heard by those you loved. So there's all kinds of writing venues available to people that will connect them to the people that they love and who love them. Well, and I think the the you know the reading and the writing piece it's such a, a critical joining of those two because uh, you know I've taken over the years some writing classes and what's the first thing they tell you to do when you take a writing class is to read 
um, yes, is to right. re- read and get connected to, to language and look how thoughts and words are put together and see what inspires you and see what sparks you. And so, you know, perhaps the more, uh, you know, the more we read, the more we'll have the, uh, the inspiration to write uh, as well. Susan, we're, we're coming up um, on our break in a couple minutes, but I just want you to quickly go back over um, uh, if folks maybe just are joining us and they're saying, oh, wow, this sounds great, but I really have no idea how to get started. Can you go back through a couple of those assignments and springboards that you mentioned for our listeners if they're thinking maybe when they, you know, hang up from the show today, they might want to go and say, yeah, I'm going to get started. I'm going to find that 20 minutes right now. Now what do I need? Well, I think you just touched on one one springboard, which is if you read, you might want to write about what you read. If you look at a painting, you might want to write about what you see in that painting. And if you listen to a piece of music, you might want to write down just feelings that you have when you hear it. Um, but I also think here's one that I used um, myself very often. Untie the strands of a domestic or work-related knot created by treatment. Mm. I mean, it's very difficult. When you have a child with leukemia, it is very difficult to work at the same time as you're going to the clinic every week or twice a week or four times a week, right? I mean, there are ways in which you have specific problems as a patient or as a caregiver of patients that it may help to, to really just sit down and say, well, I'll do it this way or I could try it that way. Um, here's another one. Itemize the equipment, pills, paraphernalia you have acquired. <laughs> mm. God knows I have a lot of equipment and paraphernalia. Mm. Describe that would, that the catheter attached to your body. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, those are great, I think, great prompts and, and uh, some things for folks to think about. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about the healing power of words. We have a lot more to cover with our guest, uh, Susan Goober. We're going to take a quick break here, but please don't go away. We will be right back. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored in part today by EMD Serono and Takeda Oncology. We've been having a great show today about how writing and reading about cancer creates a path to hearing. We're going to continue with our guest, Susan Gubar, author of Reading and Writing Cancer and the New York Times blog, Living with Cancer. Um, a couple times, Susan, through the show, you've you sort of thrown out the phase patient and caregiver. And we do the same here uh, at the cancer support community. But let, let's just talk for a moment about the caregivers. Um, it, it, you know, we certainly talked about how patients can benefit from this, but uh, I imagine that this can be something that um, the caregivers can also benefit from tremendously, particularly because the caregivers oftentimes are the ones who need to keep going. They need to get the house awake. They need to get the kids Mm -hmm. out the door. They need to do the research. They take their loved one. The loved one can say, I'm not getting up today. I'm staying under the covers. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody, but the caregiver does not have that option, and they just need to keep things moving forward. So in some ways, this may be an equally or perhaps even more powerful tool for them. I, I completely agree. Uh, I talk about two, uh, well, many more than that, but two uh, memoirs that were written by caregivers. Uh, Leanne Schreiber was taking care of her mother, and Gerda Lerner was taking care of her husband. And um, I think that uh, the, the caregiver can find as much solace and support as the cancer patient in writing. And in some ways, Leanne Schreiber says that it reminded her that she was not the patient. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful to her. It, it gave her a certain kind of distance. She was caring for her mother till the end, mm-hmm. lovingly devotedly, but mm-hmm. she had to remind herself through the writing that she was not herself dying, and it was very helpful in that regard. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, I just know that sometimes when I uh, have the privilege to attend some of our support groups around the country, I find sometimes the caregiver groups can actually be more emotionally charged than than the patient groups because it's maybe just a safe place where folks can really express some of the true things that they're feeling. Um, And even though that person may be, you know, your loved one who has cancer, the person also still is your husband, right? And you have good days and bad days and up days and down days. And and you just need some outlet for for expressing those things without folks thinking maybe you're a terrible person, you know, and certainly the writing becomes a very private um, way that folks can maybe do that and have that have that expression. Um, Susan, let's tell our listeners where they can find your blog, your New York Times blog, Living with Cancer, and also how they can find your book, Reading and Writing Cancer. Well, I don't really know the answer to those questions. I'm, I'm, um, I mean, I would assume that they can find the book on Amazon.com mm-hmm. um, and in bookstores, I would hope. 
um, I, I find my blog by typing in either my name or the blog's name, Living with Cancer. I don't have any other, I mean, if you go to the New York Times page, mm-hmm. it's, on, it's in the well section. Great. Terrific. Terrific. And um, Susan, as we get towards the end of the show, uh, just again, let our listeners know if they read, if they pick up the book, Reading and Writing Cancer, what can they expect to find in the book and what do you hope they will take away from, from reading the book? I hope that they will learn ways to um, express themselves and through that self-expression, uh, find some clarity about the condition, whether it's worsening or improving. Um, I think it's important to remember that historically writing has always been a marvelous response, an extremely cathartic response to trauma. I, I came to this realization first because I'm uh, the child of people who fled uh, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And if you think about writers from Anne Frank to Eli Wiesel and Primo Levi, uh, writing has was a way to gain some kind of traction on an unimaginable disaster. Now, I'm not comparing cancer and the Holocaust, but I am saying that for many people, cancer is traumatic. And reading and writing can help heal or at least help one cope with the aftermath of a shattering shock like a diagnosis. And, you know, Susan, I'll tell you that we do have cancer, uh, have data that shows that some folks who are diagnosed with cancer do experience the same level of trauma and distress as those who witnessed 9-11 and as those who lived through Hurricane Katrina. Um, So we certainly know that it can be an incredibly, uh, you know, traumatic experience. And so to really be dealing with what can be similar to PTSD and finding some outlets and vehicles to, um, you know, to deal with that is, is, uh, I think really, um, important. And we certainly do provide writing programs and workshops at many of our cancer support communities, um, around the country. And we have some wonderful writers and, and authors who, uh, who work with us there and, and share their own experiences and really give folks some guidance for, for how to get started. Um, I, I noticed Susan, the dedication in your book is quote, for those who survive and those who do not. Um, I think that's very powerful and really encapsulates in many ways the purpose of the book. Um, and, and really one of the things we think you're doing is really to help people contend with any possible outcome um, of, of, uh, of their cancer. But can you talk a little bit about that dedication and what was sort of behind that and kind of in your heart and your mind when you, when you wrote that? Um, I, I'm so glad that you noticed that because I did that very deliberately. Uh, there's a scholar who talks about the tyranny of cheerfulness, uh, the idea that we are responsible for uh, maintaining a good attitude or the right nutrition or the right exercise or the right alternative medicines so that we can beat cancer. And I think this creates a sense of guilt in cancer patients that somehow if they're not beating cancer, they've got the wrong attitude, or they haven't found the right doctor, or they they need to change their diet, or their weight is wrong. The statistics tell another story. They tell us that many cancers are fatal, and I think it's terrifically important to acknowledge that people who die of cancer are not losers of the fight. They're not losers at all. 
um, what what they are have been are patients who are coping as best as they can. So I I really think that uh, it's important for us to get over this upbeat tyranny of cheerfulness and and cope with the realities, even when they're grim, um, by trying to help ourselves see them, illuminate them, and enlighten ourselves in the process. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, we certainly at cancer support community, it's you know we something we stay away from. Oh, you got to keep a positive attitude. It's not. Uh, uh, it's not really, you know, in the clinical literature that that's uh, that that's the approach that we should take. It's it's you know, how do you find meaning in the cancer yes. experience for yourself and meaning for yourself? And it's a very personal exploration and it's a very personal journey. But it can be, you know, a meaning making experience. And folks who connect through our tools and programs sometimes have the opportunity to explore that existential piece um, of the experience. So I want to I want to thank our guest Susan Gubar, author of Reading and Writing Cancer and also author of the New York Times blog, Living with Cancer. I would encourage our listeners to check those things out. And um, uh, we think that you'll find something there for you to help you uh, uh, through your journey. I also want to remind our listeners that here at the Cancer Support Community, we provide a wide range of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. We want to make sure no matter who you are, no matter what kind of cancer you have, no matter where you live, you know that you do not have to face cancer alone. Visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, or you could pick up the phone and call our helpline right now for information, counseling, resources, connection, 888-793-9355. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management